Father, our hearts are steadfast, and we will sing praises to you. Father, your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. And we exalt you, O God, above the heavens, and your glory is above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. So we pray that you would save with your right hand and you would answer us as we cry to you this morning for more of you, for more of your word, that we might give more of ourselves to you. We are grateful that Christ our Savior has come and lived and died and rose and ascended on high and is coming back for us. Thank you for our completed redemption and we eagerly await the return of our Lord and until he returns may we be found faithful may we be the kind of people that you require of us to be in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation may we be lights to this world and salt so in that we pray for your help as we look at your word today It is a light unto our feet. Shine it brightly that we might know how we should walk with you. These we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scriptures also say, um, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So I invite you to stand as we read John chapter 18 verses 28 through 32 just a few short verses this morning John chapter 18 verses 28 through 32 please give attention to the reading of God's word then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium and it was early they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover therefore Pilate went out to them and said What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This morning we're going to talk about irony, and I'll probably say the word too many times, but uh, uh, this message is not about irony, but irony helps us to find out what the lessons are for this passage that we have just read. Many scholars have pointed out that John's gospel is rich in irony. When you understand that and then you start reading the gospel of John and looking for it and you're aware that it is a key uh, literary device that John uses, you go, man, this guy has some real literary chops. He does when it comes to, to, to using irony. Uh, we use irony all the time. Irony in its simplest use is a, a statement where the intended meaning is opposite from what is said, and that's called verbal irony. So here's, here's an example. Nothing is written in stone. Or is it? Well, that's ironic. Yes, it is. That's a perfect example of what irony is. Um, we will do that oftentimes. Say you have a, a group of people that know one another, and uh, a guy walks in with some really ugly shorts, right? And one of the guys will cry out, nice shorts, Harry, right? They're not really nice, but that's, uh, that's irony. Or women would never do that, right? Because they would never say, a, a lady walks in with an ugly dress. They don't call that. They, they do it this way, nice dress, to the woman who's next to them, right? <laughs> Sorry, but it's true, right? It is true. But that's what irony is. And literary irony Uh, is defined as an outcome of events that are contrary to what you expect. You're thinking, you see, we see it in a story, we see it in a book that we read, in movies. We see it a lot in the scriptures, a lot in the scriptures. Um, For instance, um, Esther 7.10 says this, So they hanged Haman 
on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. That is irony. They hanged Haman on the gallows which had prepared been prepared for Mordecai. Then there's something called dramatic irony. And um, we see this in the book of Genesis at the end uh, when Joseph is reunited with his brothers. And it says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. With dramatic irony, you're reading a story and you know more than the people in the story know. You know the backstory. And, and the reader, as he's reading Genesis, knows the backstory of all that God has been doing in the life of Joseph. His brothers are totally clueless. So when it comes together in this dramatic conclusion, we know what God has been doing, and he gives the twist. And that's oftentimes, that's the way we describe irony in a story. Wow, that had quite a twist. It had a, uh, a surprise ending. It's usually irony that we're talking about. So there's irony in everything. I mean, we live in a world of irony, don't we? We really do. Um, um, we live in, in the world of 1984 where war is peace, right? So many things that we hear, and, and forgive me, I'm, you know, I'm a military man. I'm still smarting and vexed from what happened in Afghanistan. But we had this uh, abject failure in Afghanistan, and it's held as a a wonderful victory, and it went just the way we planned it, right? That's irony. That's irony. Another example is um, sexual revolution today, where people, people are free. They can do whatever they want. When it comes to sex, you're, we're set free. We don't have those old traditional mores anymore. We, we, we're, the, the, the shackles are, have been loose from us and we can do whatever we want but yet we know as christians that it's slavery slavery to those addictions and to those those fleshly appetites and so freedom is slavery right so we see irony everywhere we'll come back to irony in the story in just a moment but first we want to set it up we saw the beginning of the trials period plural last week the first trial with annas and as Chris told us last week, Annas was not the high priest. He had been the high priest, but he's like the godfather. And I wish Chris had done his, his uh, uh, interpretation of the godfather because he did that in, in our sermon prep a couple weeks ago. But anyway, Annas is like the godfather. He's the man behind the scenes, the puppeteer, you know, the man behind the curtain, all those ironic things we would say. And he is, uh, he's the man back there. And Caiaphas is the, is the elected official for these years, and he's the one with whom Pilate has to do. Pilate has to deal with him. Annas, the trial was not really a trial, was it? It was more like an arraignment. And Annas only asked him a few questions, and someone slapped Jesus, and then they sent him off to Caiaphas. And what we saw last was in verse 24, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In John's gospel, typically, John has a different approach than the other gospels. 90% of the information in John's gospel is unique. That means uh, only 10% of his stuff is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is quite a, so John's gospel is very important to get another perspective. And this is what we see in terms of the trials of Jesus. Um, depending how you count them, it's, it's, it's almost six trials. There are basically two trials. There is a religious trial. In a civil trial, the Jews find him guilty and he has to be found guilty by the civil authorities. So we see the, uh, the as is typical, John's emphasis is a little bit different from everybody else. Only John has the story of Annas. Caiaphas we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The trial with the Sanhedrin we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't see those in John. In the civil trials, we have Jesus before Pilate in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Herod is only found in Luke, but then Pilate, part two, is, is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What we're going to see is Pilate in the next few weeks here. Jesus stands before Pilate, and, and we're, next week we're going to see the conversation between Jesus and Pilate going back and forth. 
not included in John's gospel is that Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod questions him, and Jesus is just silent, says nothing, and so Pilate sends, or Herod sends him back to Pilate, where he's ultimately found guilty. But John assumes that his readers know much more than we would think, because his is the last gospel that is written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before John. His is the last written. And throughout the book of John, he assumes that his audience knows those other gospels, and he knows the rest of the story. And that's where part of the irony comes in. So in John's gospel, there is no record of this trial with Caiaphas or the Sanhedrin or with Herod. It's mainly about Pilate, as you can see from the, the, uh, the tables up there. John is going to deal mainly with Pilate. And it's hard to say exactly why that is. Um, what is going to happen with Jesus before Pilate in John's gospel, we're going to see the theme of, of Jesus being the king of Israel. And John will bring that out with Pilate, a secular Gentile leader, rather than before the Jews. So all of this is to demonstrate the injustice that is perpetrated against Jesus, against the Son of God. He is truly innocent of any wrongdoing, and yet he's going to be found guilty, sentenced to death, and unjustly crucified. That's where we're headed. All as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the ultimate irony, isn't it? This is the ultimate irony. Even that is a bit of irony that those who claim to be righteous are actually evil. Those who declare Jesus evil are the ones who are evil. He is the one who is righteous. They are the ones who are evil. And it's, it's ironic. So our first bit of irony is found in verse 28, the irony of blind hypocrisy. And the irony there is if you're, if you're a hypocrite and you don't know it, then that's a bit ironic. Um, and they don't know it. These religious leaders don't know that they're hypocrites. But we see it in the text. And this is uh, very typical of John's use of irony. First of all, let me get there in just a moment. Verse 28, the first part of the story. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. We don't have the, the story again of the trial before Caiaphas. And the they is probably the Sanhedrin, all of the religious leaders to, together. They, they, they bring Jesus to, from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, which is the place where Pilate, will place, where, where Pilate lives, actually, and where he will pass judgment. Pilate is not a nice guy. Pilate hates the Jews. The Jews hate Pilate. They abhor one another. They really do. And as we see, is often the case, uh, uh, hatred makes for interesting bedfellows, doesn't it? And that's what happens here. So they lead Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, John says, a bit of eyewitness uh, just in that one phrase there. So we know that they have been at this all night long. Jesus has been at this since he was arrested in the garden. The disciples, I'm sure they have not slept a wink, but they've, they've dispersed. We don't know where they are except for Peter and maybe John. And we know that um, they've, they just want to bring this to a conclusion. Early, meaning probably somewhere between 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning. So it was early. They bring Jesus to the praetorium, praetorium, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Typical, again, of John's irony, he states something that is pretty obvious to us as readers, and he doesn't give any kind of commentary about it, like, see, these guys were very hypocritical. He just lays it out for us, and it's easy for us to see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. It's clear from the other gospel accounts that the, the other, uh, trials, they tried to find some charges against Jesus. They, tried to, they, they threw everything at him and nothing could stick. The only thing that they could come up with was blasphemy. Blasphemy. Unfortunately, that's not going to stick with Pilate. Because he's, a religious, he's not a religious leader. 
It's not going to hold with him because he's a secular leader and he's not interested in any way with in Jewish theology. So Caiaphas is doing the bidding of Annas and they come and they don't want to be defiled. John Constable said this, ironically, they are taking extreme precautions to avoid ritual defilements while at the same time preparing to murder the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John doesn't call attention to that other than just stating what happens, the obvious. The Jewish leaders are hypocritically proceeding with this unlawful execution of Jesus while at the same time they are scrupulously keeping all the minute details of the law. Murder, we don't want to be defiled with maybe some unleavened bread uh, hanging around there in, in the praetorium or in the court of the Gentiles. They are meticulous and paying attention to the minutia of the law while at the same time plotting murder. Can you believe that? I mean, it's the, the ultimate of hypocrisy of saying one thing and doing another, and they're not even aware of it. They're blind to it, and they go to ridiculous lengths to avoid this ritual contamination, and, the, and, and Pilate plays along. They're waiting out there saying, he needs to come out here that we're not defiled. So Pilate dutifully comes out, and we're going to see he comes out, and he goes back and forth, and he's just kind of a yo-yo on a string, but he's got them as a yo-yo on a string too. We'll see that. There's irony at more than one level. They're blind. They're hypocrites, and they don't even know it. Jesus said this in Matthew, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe with mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. They give you know, a little bit of their herbs. You know, Here's a leaf here, and they're tithe with these. But, they, but they're neglecting the, the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those things are more important than a few leaves of of dill and and cumin. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That picture is like, what is that, swallowing a camel? How do you do that? They would would take a cup of wine or water and look in there, and if there was a gnat that would be unclean, they would have to strain it out so they could drink it because they weren't going to be defiled. But at the same time, they're being defiled by, by greater things like injustice and mercilessness and hatred and envy and murder in their hearts, thus swallowing a camel. Their hypocrisy was not minute, it was great. The real irony here is, let me read it again. They themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they could not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. They want to participate in the Passover while rejecting Christ who is the Passover. That's ironic. And it is hypocritical. We see irony, but it reveals hypocrisy. And that's the lesson that we're seeing for us. We see hypocrisy in, in the world in which we live right now in, in politics. You know, we, we see it over and over again. Rules for thee, but not for me, right? That's, we hear that oftentimes. And we see hypocrisy at the greatest levels of, uh, of our society. The elite who protect their own because they're powerful, we used to be the nation of uh, the little guy and the working class man, but it's now we have the elite that's arrayed on one, one side with one ideology. What were to happen if you were to lie to Congress? You would go to jail unless you were one of the ruling elite, right? We've, that's where we're at these days. If you're well connected, then you get a pass. That is unjust and it is, it is hypocritical. But the world does what the world does. We need, to be, we, we need to recognize that and understand that the world does what the world does. The world does not know Christ. The world has no restraints as to what they think and what they do. They talk about justice, but justice is another matter. We live in a world of irony where people say one thing, but the meaning is exactly the opposite. 
we should expect it. So some lessons. The lesson of hypocrisy is that we are often blind to it. Most people don't recognize that they're hypocrites when they're hypocrites, do they? That's the the nefarious nature of hypocrisy is we're usually blind to it. That's the irony. How do we avoid hypocrisy in our own lives? the, the, The Jewish leaders are an example for us. The Jewish leaders are a lesson for us. The lesson and the example for us is negative. Don't do that. Don't be like that. How do we avoid that hypocrisy? Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living, which was a bit of hyperbole, but uh, it's oftentimes quoted. The scriptures put it this way, and I hope and encourage you to this from Psalm 139, to pray on a regular basis this prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Brothers and sisters, this is something we should be doing on a regular basis, confessing our sins, being aware of our sin, being sensitive to our sins, because we, 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 we wear grooves in our minds, we think a certain way, we, we wear grooves in our speech patterns, we speak a certain way, we wear grooves in our behavior patterns, and we just go a certain way, and we become blind to it, and we can become hypocrites. So it's important to often, if not daily, and I seek to do this daily, and I hope you will do, go over the the day before. Go back over your words. Go back over your attitudes. Go back over your motivations. Ask God to show you. Think about that. And and, and it happens to me all the time. I'll think back with a conversation. I'll go, why did I say that? You know, why did I... You know, why was I so sharp with my tongue? Why, what was my motivation? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And when we confess those things, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us unright- for an, in all unrighteousness. And when we are more and more aware of our sin patterns, we are more and more likely to fight against it with the weapons of warfare that have been given to us. We don't want to be hypocrites. But we must be careful of our own hypocrisy, for Jesus had his harshest words for religious hypocrites, not hypocrites in the United States government, not hypocrites in in Hollywood, not hypocrites in, in the Roman Empire, but he has his harshest words for those who claim Christ and say one thing and do another. Hypocritical Christian should be an oxymoron, should it not? It really should. And we must be careful. Do you know the number one reason that people say they don't want to become a Christian? Uh, us. If they say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. And yes, we all are at times. I understand that. We're, nobody's perfect. But God help us that our own hypocrisy not be the stumbling block that prevents someone from coming to faith in Christ. The second lesson is that the world is watching. Oh, is the world watching. And yes, they will be quick to point out our faults, but that's what the world does, okay? But we should live lives that are examined and lives that are righteous. Romans 4.21 is a big ouch really is. Paul says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery in any form? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, though you are breaking the law through breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Look at verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. The world blasphemes the name of Jesus all the time. 
I mean, you, you hear it in a, in a movie or a song or a rap or whatever it is, and it just, it just grades, it grates against you. Um, something evil is said of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, and he is blasphemed all the time. But he should not be blasphemed because Ben Orchard said one thing and did another. Or any of us. And the world is watching. We, want to, we need to be aware of that, that, that. We want the world to know that we're Christians. We don't want to be undercover. When, in your workplace, we want you to be a good testimony. We want you to, to speak well of God and of others and, and, and pray for others and ask if you can pray and, and be salt and light. But if you make it known that you're a Christian in the workplace or in your neighborhood or wherever it may be, you must walk the walk, not just talk the talk. We have to be examples that people will be pulled to Christ by our example. So we learn a negative lesson from the Jewish religious leaders. Um, we see the irony of blind hypocrisy, and we don't want to be blind to our own hypocrisy. So let God search your heart every single day. Be aware that the world is watching, and um, let's, let's be people that are true, blue, people that are, that they, someone will say, you can go to this person, you can trust their word, and you can, you can just rely upon them because they will do the right thing. Then, in verses 29 and 30, we see this next bit of irony. The irony of trusting the untrustworthy. That's what happens in in here. These two unlikely bedfellows are trusting one another with the same purpose, but you can't do that. You can't trust someone who's untrustworthy. We see that irony demonstrated. Verse 29 Therefore, Pilate went out to them. The therefore is they're not coming in because they don't want to be defiled by the guy that they're trying to ingratiate themselves to. So he goes out to them as a concession. He goes out to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? It's kind of, kind of odd when you think about it. And I'm sure they're going, wait a minute, that's surprising. I thought we had a deal, right? <laughs> Didn't you just send a couple hundred troops to arrest Jesus? I thought we made our case that he needed to be arrested and needed to be put to death. What do you mean? What charges? What's the accusation? He's not going to play their game. Like I said, he hates them. They hate him. They both, in one sense, want the same thing, but they're going to play this little horrible dance the dance of two devils, and they're going to to play around this thing. Neither one of them are trustworthy. Neither one of them can trust the other one. And so he says, what uh, accusation do you bring? Surprisingly, Pilate asked them. He wants illegal proceedings to proceed, but there must be a charge. If the charge were clear, then it'll be easy. Okay, we can do that. But what is their response? Well, it's weak and it's pathetic. They said, well, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Now, would we? Evildoer, okay, you, you make a character assassinate, assassination there. You say he's a bad person. Okay, well, what did he do? Well, you have to trust us. If you only knew, boy, you would really trust us. But I don't know. So tell me, what did he do? And they're playing this game. You know why they won't tell? Him? Because what's the one charge that they have? Blasphemy. Pilate doesn't care. Uh, when you hear blasphemy in, in, a, in a rap song or you see it in a movie or you, 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 know, you see it online and someone says something foul about Jesus Christ and it happens all the time, do you call the police to have them arrested? They don't care. Same thing here. He doesn't care. Their answer is weak. But you see, the thing is, they expect Pilate to just rubber stamp the whole process, put him to death. Just trust us, basically, what it comes down to. 
But that's the irony. They're, they're unwilling to admit that they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, which itself is blasphemy, isn't it? To say that Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless one, is a blasphemer is blasphemy in itself. The irony is situational here because we know we know more than what, um, what Pilate knows at this point. And that's where we get the, the irony because we, we know the rest of the story. And John assumes that his readers know this from the other Gospels. And we know this. And so um, you have this, these two going back and back. We know that the Jews have found him guilty of blasphemy, but Pilate doesn't know that. But we know it. But you have two devils here. The, the classic... Faustian bargain, you've heard of that, is this. That someone makes a deal with the devil. They give their soul in exchange for some short-term gain. There have been movies and songs written about that. So, you know, one idea would be a young man makes a deal with the devil. I'll give you my soul if I can be the greatest rock and roll guitar player in the world. By the way, you can't do this. It doesn't work this way, okay? So he becomes the greatest guitar player in the world. You know what irony would be? Two weeks later on stage, he steps in water while playing the electric guitar and is electrocuted. That would be irony. But the Faustian bargain is is dealing with the devil for some short-term gain. But what do you do when you have two devils? That's what we have here. When two devils make a bargain, don't expect it to go well. Because when two devils make a bargain, don't expect either one to live up to their side. So we see irony here. Some lessons for us. It is folly to expect flawless justice in this world. This is about justice. And we see justice gone awry. And so... Yeah, irony that helps us to understand it. But the the lesson is about hypocrisy and it's about justice or injustice. And there is no justice here. There will not be justice from the religious leaders. There will not be justice from Pilate. And there will not be justice in this world. Not flawless justice. Because only God is the perfect and righteous judge. Only God. That is the only ultimate justice we will ever see. And I know that's hard for us because it's frustrating when we see injustice all the time. We we want to pull our hair out. We want to say, this is America. It shouldn't be this way. We should have justice. This is the best justice system in, in world history, I believe, the United States of America. But it's corrupt, right? It has been corrupted. Because here we see, you know, the, the, what, what our justice system is, is based upon is that one is presumed innocent until proven guilty. What is happening in the story? Is Jesus presumed innocent? No, he's presumed guilty, and they're just looking for an executioner, right? Does that ever happen in our world? Uh, cancel culture with the world of videos, a, a crime is... Is, is videotaped, whether it's a robbery or a shooting or whatever it may be. We don't have the full context. And what happens? In the court of public opinion, in the court of, the court of public opinion becomes jury, judge, and executioner. That guy needs to be strung up. He was just arrested. Hasn't even been arraigned yet. But he's guilty. That is not the way our justice system works. But it's the way our world works. And we have to get used to that and we have to be okay with that, recognizing we have a sovereign God and we cannot pull our hair out. We live in a time when mob rule sometimes is employed. People are often tried and found guilty before they ever stand before a judge or a jury. And these leaders came to a conclusion looking for a death sentence, and that happens in our culture as well. We should view others the way our our judicial system and God's justice is. We 
we should always assume that people are innocent until the proverb. The first who pleads his case seems right until another one comes along. Evidence. They weren't interested in the truth or justice, just a desired outcome, which we often see. Second lesson is this. Remember depravity. Depravity is the the doctrine that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God. God made this world right, and man fell, and because of Adam's sin, the whole of creation is corrupted by sin, and that extends to all men, and the only reversal of that is the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. And everything in this world, from COVID to cancer to hurricanes to divorce, whatever it may be, is caused by sin. And one of the elemental and essential beliefs of a Christian worldview is this idea of depravity. And if we, if we don't understand that, we're, we're going to be looking at the world wrongly because we, it doesn't mean we, we, we think that everybody's evil, but it means that we're skeptical. We have to be skeptical. We have to have a healthy skepticism of those who are in authority. Timothy Leary said back in the 60s, question authority. I think that came long before Timothy Leary. As those who believe in depravity, we honor those who are our leaders. We pray for them and we hope the good and godly men are elected to office and will lead us. But we also need to be skeptical and we need to be realistic that men and women are mere mortals who have feet of clay and are depraved. So we see this same philosophy in our current politics where some people believe some things so very, very strongly that justice doesn't need to be served. We need an outcome. We need an outcome. And whatever it takes to get the outcome, if you have the power, then you use that power for the outcome. And it's going to happen, and we need just, just to be aware of it. And uh, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the dark forces of this world, and we use the armament that God has given to us. Third lesson, remember that you also are not perfect. It's one thing for us to talk about our leaders, the military, um, big tech, social media, all the things that are lined up against us. But we're not perfect either. We are still affected by sin. We are still prone to wander. We still stumble badly. We have not resisted to the point of shedding blood against our sin We must walk according to the Spirit lest we fulfill the desires of the flesh. And we must be humble in that and recognize that there but for the grace of God go I when we look at the world around us. So, the third bit of irony is found in verses 31 and 32. The irony of divine providence is the irony of ironies, isn't it? Divine providence All things work together for good. All things. God even uses bad things for good. That's irony, isn't it? Verses 31 through 32. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anybody to death. (laughs) Ah, so it comes out. Now it comes out the part that they couldn't speak out loud. So the irony is, is this. There are many layers, but Pilate is, is saying something like this. He says, if you expect me to trust your judgment and accept his guilt based upon your word, if your word is so good, well, then I trust you. Go ahead and, and find him guilty. And they're going, oh, wait, oh, wait a minute. We, that's not what we had in mind. We want you to find him guilty but because we, we don't have the power to do it. That's again why they didn't tell him what the charge was. 
But at this point, Pilate is having none of it. He sees through their scheme. Their motive and their plan is obvious. And he's going to play them, and they're going to play him. There's going to be this back and forth and back and forth, and it's a big drama. The Jewish leaders admit that they are powerless to execute Jesus. And do you see the irony here? The powerlessness of the powerful. And so it is in our world today. People think that they are so powerful and they have no power. They have none. The Jews had already found him guilty and they were seeking someone else's authority to put him to, to, to death. Their, yes, their civil case was weak and Pilate is unlikely to consider blasphemy, but they just need to find a way to put him to death. Here's the thing. The Jews, they think they're in control. The religious leaders, they think they're in control. Pilate, he thinks he's in control. Who's in control? To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was all about to die. God's in control. They think the irony is, oh, you got these two titanic, uh, powerfully... Uh, endued people and they're going back and forth to one another and they have no power at all because God is the one who is really calling the shots. If the Jews wanted what they wanted, they would just stone him, right? And put him to death, but they can't do that because of the law. If Pilate got what he wanted, he would just release him because he doesn't care. He doesn't like Jesus. He doesn't like them. He doesn't want the drama and all this. He would just let him go. And that's why we're going to see in the next few weeks, few weeks, Pilate will say three times, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. But in the end, who gets what they want? God. This statement, verse 32 is the fulfillment of Jesus' words. John says, to fulfill the word of Jesus. Jesus gave a self-prophecy. He gave several of them in the book. We don't see a lot of Old Testament prophecies in the book of John, but we see a number of statements that Jesus makes that come true. He's thinking of, of chapter 12, verse 32, that says this. Jesus said, this is back in the upper room, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. John inserts both of those, that, that phrase in both of these passages. Jesus knew what was ahead. He knew what the will of the Father was. And the fulfillment of Jesus' death will come by Roman crucifixion. Je Jesus doesn't say that in John's gospel, but in the other gospels, he says the words, son of man will be handed over, he will be scourged, and he will be crucified. So there are three reasons it was necessary for Jesus to be crucified. To fulfill prophecy that none of his bones be broken. Because if they stoned him, uh, he would have had broken bones. But in chapter 19, verses 36 and 37, it says, For these things came to pass to fulfill Scripture, quoting the Old Testament. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. The Word of God must be fulfilled. And it fulfills prophecy. Second of all, to include Jew and Gentile in his rejection. It's not just the Jewish nation that rejects Jesus, it is the world. So therefore, we are complicit in the guilt. The Romans are complicit in the guilt of the Jews, the Jews are complicit in the, in the guilt of the Romans, and we are complicit because the world has come and rejected the Messiah. Acts 2, 
23 on the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan or foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan of God was that the Jews would hand Jesus over to godless men and they were all guilty of nailing him to a cross. In chapter 4 of Acts, John and Peter have been uh, have been put in jail for preaching the gospel, and then they're released, and, and they're, they're praying to God, a prayer of thanksgiving. And they say this to God, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It all happened according to plan. That Jesus would die on the cross. Thirdly, to fulfill Jesus' own words in 1232, which we read, and that he would be a curse for us. For it says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written in the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He had to be crucified. They didn't have the power to stone him. The only ones that had the power to kill him and to sentence him to death was, death was the Roman government. And the means and the method and the mode of their death and their execution was a cross. Thus fulfilling, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree for us. God's in control. God is in control of all of this. Conclusion for us this morning. First of all, you can always trust the words of Jesus. Whatever he says will happen. Always. Whether it was about himself, whether it's about us, about the future, and all of these are the words of Jesus, really. We don't just take out the red letters and say, well, Jesus said this about being crucified. No, it is all his word. And in this world where it is filled with devils warring against one another, in this world where we can't uh, see justice and we wonder what is happening, where will it all end, he knows. And he has a good word for us. And he has encouragement for us. And he has a plan for us that is good and holy and righteous and joyful. And that is what we have in Christ every single day, the words of Jesus. Because secondly, God overrides evil purposes to fulfill his eternal purpose. All the things that we see happening in the world that may appear to us to be evil, they are, but God uses them ultimately for good. You see, the irony here that God, of God fulfilling God's will by directly working against it. And that's what they were doing. The, the Jews and Pilate were directly working against God's will. And yet what happens? They fulfill it. Because God will not, will not be denied. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. That is our God. That is the one in whom we trust. And that is our hope. It is not politics, parties, change in the world. It's not going to happen. We'll never be satisfied, believe me, I can tell you that. But we can be satisfied in him, ultimately. And then the third one is this. Don't fight, therefore, against God. Don't kick against the goads, as Paul said. God is working his will in your life, and if you are fighting against him, don't do that. Some of you are. You know God wants you to to do certain things. There are certain things in your life that you need to give up, and you're fighting against him with your own flesh. Don't fight against him. Don't. 
Don't fight against him. Give in to him. And some of you may be even fighting for your own salvation. I, I don't want to bend the knee. I don't want to believe. I don't want to give in. I know that I should, but I don't want to do it. By his grace, believe in him. In fact, as you take out your cup for the Lord's table, look at this verse from John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For what purpose? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. If you believe in the Son of Man who was lifted up, is he drawing you to himself? He was lifted up. Uh, that we, This is the means of our salvation at, uh, in, in the, uh, the wilderness. The Israelites sinned and God sent serpents. And, and Moses cried out, what shall we do? And he says, we'll make a standard with a serpent on it. And you should have people uh, lifted up and people look at that. And they trust in that for their rescue, for their healing. That was God's choice. Seems weird to us. But in the same way, God lifts up his son crucified to a standard. And we look to him and we find our forgiveness by faith in him. And I call you to that. If you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to this simple meal, bread and cup. Bread represents the body of Christ, the cup, the blood of Christ. Christian, come. There's hypocrisy, confess it. If there's powerlessness, confess it. If there's irony in your life that needs to be given up, confess it. But we come based upon what he has done, not what we can do or have done. And if this is the first time that you partake of this bread and this cup as a believer, as you hold it in your hand, say to God, I believe in the Son of God who was lifted up on the cross for my sins. Would you forgive me? My trust, my hope is in him. Thank you. Pray with me, please. Our Lord Jesus, you are despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one like from whom men hide their faces. You are despised, and we did not esteem you. Surely you have borne our infirmities and carried away our sorrows. Yet we considered you stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But you were pierced for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon you. And by your wounds we are healed. For all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on you the iniquity of us all. We thank you for such love and sacrifice on our behalf. And we partake of this bread and cup with great gratitude in your name. Amen.